Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Episode 241. 241 is the country code belonging to Gabon, a country in West Africa. In 1941, the Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on the United States fleet at Pearl Harbor, and M&Ms were created exclusively for U.S. service members deployed overseas. When my kids bring their Halloween candy home, I don't hide it and then eat it when they're asleep. I eat it in front of them, slowly. Total power move. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 241st episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, we speak with Bill Burnett, the co-author of the New York Times bestselling Designing Your Life and the co-director of the Life Design Lab at Stanford University. We discuss with Bill the attributes of design thinking, understanding your talent, and what to do when you feel stuck. Okay, what's happening? Well, the big news is obviously the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank. Text messages were starting to go around. It became chatter. And as the days went on, screenshots In about 40 hours, essentially collapsing and losing more than $40 billion in deposits. We broke this down in a special episode uh, of our market show, which you can find linked in our show notes. To cover this unfolding story even further, we're bringing in Financial Times U.S. financial commentator Robert Armstrong. Robert, where does this podcast find you? Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, nice. Let's bust right into it. In your recent analysis, you wrote that Silicon Valley Bank's collapse is a profitability problem rather than a threat to solvency in the style of the 2008 crisis. What did you mean by that? I meant that Silicon Valley Bank fell down because its balance sheet was extremely poorly managed. So as you know, Scott, banks do two things. They, they get money from people and they give money from people. And the trick to making money as a bank is to earn more on the money that you give than on the money you get. And Silicon Valley got into a situation where during the good times, they bought a lot of bonds at low yields. And then the bad times came. They had all these low yielding bonds. And all of a sudden, the money they were getting, their funding, their deposits was becoming more expensive. So they threatened, they were threatened with becoming an unprofitable bank. There's a general feeling across people who know, including yourself, that the risk of contagion here is a lot lower than it was 15 years ago. Why is that? Well, in this particular case, the key point is that uh, Silicon Valley Bank was extraordinarily badly managed from a risk point of view. And 
its peer banks, including the peer banks that have seen their stock prices get badly beaten up, just don't have the same problems to the same degree. The same concentration of highly flighty business deposits, the same domination of the asset side of the balance sheet by low-yield, long-term government bonds. It, the, this bank was an outlier. That's point number one. Point number two is that the post-2008 crisis regulations have kind of worked. Banks are, in general, in America, are quite well capitalized and quite liquid. So that's better. <laughs> the fact that a bank failed here shows you that the regulatory regime is not perfect. Maybe no regular, regulatory regime can be, but we're better off than we were, systemically speaking. People reference that uh, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank lobbied Congress for a rollback in certain aspects of the Dodd-Frank regulation for banks that had less than $250 billion in assets claiming that they were different. Can you tell us exactly what that regulation was that they rolled back? And if they had not rolled it back, would it have prevented this type of run on the bank or this liquidity crisis? So there was, in 2018, there was a bill that rolled back certain aspects of the Dodd-Frank post-crisis regulation for kind of medium-sized American banks. And it meant that those banks would face less frequent stress tests, have somewhat less stringent liquidity and capital requirements, and would not have to have what they call living will, uh, a resolution plan that the very biggest banks have to do, uh, what living wills are supposed to do is make sure that when a bank falls over, it does not create a, a systemic problem. I, I don't think rolling back those rules for mid-sized banks was a good idea. I'm not sure it was material in this case. This kind of talk that it all comes down to that bill I think is evidence of the first rule of financial crises, which is that it is the fault of someone who belongs to the other political party. And although that rule is never broken and we'll be reading a lot about it, I'm not sure in this case it would have made a difference because in my view, the failure, the key failures at Silicon Valley Bank were first, the management of Silicon Valley Bank sort of failing balance sheet risk control 101 risk management and two the supervisors as opposed to the regulators so there's two aspects to regulating banks there's making rules for what they can do and there's somebody getting on the phone and calling the bank and making sure it's doing the right stuff so i see this as a failure of management and a failure of supervision rather than regulation per se. There's also, and this might fall in under the umbrella that you just outlined of looking for someone to blame that doesn't share your political values. But there's a class of, of individuals who are exceptionally loud on Twitter, and I'm going to refer to them not as venture capitalists, but as venture catastrophists. And it's this catastrophe of, oh, China is pulling ahead in AI because we're being overregulated. And our system, our venture system, runs so much better and has such greater lubrication and so much more horsepower when it's not hamstrung by the idiots in Washington. And then there's this panic 
were arsonists screaming fire. I mean, literally at the top of their lungs, taking to Twitter and saying, lines around the banks, kind of all caps hysteria. And then when there begins a run on the bank, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. There, where's the government? And it, it, there's just a certain amount of resentment, and I feel some of it, that you're not being especially good citizens here, that you're finding soft tissue in the system that you claim is terrible. And then you're an arsonist who figures out a way to start a fire, and then you're just screaming, where is the fire department? Am I being hyperbolic here? No. Uh, there is no more satisfying irony in the world than watching a part-time libertarian scream for help. And it is clear that this is what has happened here. As soon as it became clear that this bank was in trouble, everybody in Silicon Valley became a believer in the, the government and its responsibilities to support and basically backstop industry. Do you think, what do you think happens here? Your sense is that this is, I'm, I'm going to use the pandemic as an analogy, that when a lot of different people get some sort of natural immunity, the contagion gets blocked. It, it infects one person, it goes to the second signature bank, and then it hits a block. It hits, it hits a Charles Schwab or someone else that quite frankly just has the liquidity, has done all sorts of stress tests because of Dodd-Frank. And just quite frankly, it's just much more bulletproof. Is that a fair analogy and assessment of what might ha or what is not happening here? I think that is true up to a certain point. The difficult point in situations like this is in any banking system, no matter how well designed, you are doing what they call maturity transformation. You are taking short-term deposits and turning them into long-term loans. And that is powerful magic. And in, in the best regulated banking system, if you inject enough panic, the infection just runs out of control. So this goes back to your earlier point that th there is a test of the sort of responsibility of everyone involved. It depends on a lot of people not yelling fire in a crowded theater and being sensible and I think there are legitimate questions about how these kind of panic dynamics are different now than they might have been in an era when our communications technology was different. So it is important to recognize that there will always be banking scares and that there is no conceivable regulatory regime that closes off every possibility of stress, severe stress in the banking system. Uh, we're dealing with powerful forces that can be moderated, but not eliminated here. And wasn't at the end of the day, the remedy just to lift uh, the cap on FDIC? And if, if that's the case, is that a structural change we have coming? That the $250,000 limit is sort of, you know, means something until it doesn't. Yes, and, but I, I would note first that that's always been true that when push comes to shove in a banking crisis, the government does one damn thing or another to protect uninsured depositors. 
the prospect of all business depositors having their money stuck in a banking system is just too damn scary. So either by, as in 2008, arranging a forced marriage with another bank or changing this rule or changing that rule or buying assets from banks to make them more liquid, something is always done. Uh, and whether that becomes now explicit, uh, that's that's an open question. But part of what you're talking about here is moral hazard, right? Well, a lot of people worry that if we bail out uninsured depositors, depositors will they'll become uh, careless and they will become uh, risk prone, and they'll put their money in in banks that aren't really stable. I'm not sure how much we need to worry about that, actually. I think banks are risk averse primarily because the boss doesn't want to get fired. And in this case, the boss got fired and the executive team, the whole executive team got fired. Their their stock options are now worthless. All the shareholders got wiped out. The bondholders got wiped out. That's a pretty powerful force even in the absence of depositors being at risk. Robert Armstrong is the FT's U.S. financial commentator and writes the Unhedged newsletter. He joins us from his home in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Robert, thanks so much. Really enjoyed this conversation. Real pleasure, Scott. We'll be right back for our conversation with Bill Burnett. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Bill Burnett, the co-author of the New York Times bestselling Designing Your Life and the co-director of the Life Design Lab at Stanford University. Professor Burnett, where does this podcast find you? I'm at my office at Stanford. Oh, nice. This morning, yeah. So how do people become better design thinkers? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, this thing we call design thinking now, we used to call it just human-centered design. We've been doing this at Stanford for, I don't know, a long time, since 1963 when we started this program. The way you do it is you just change your mindset. You start thinking like a designer. So there's five mindsets. Curiosity. Rather than being a skeptic, be curious, because if we're talking about the future, there's no data anyway, so let's just get curious and 
check it out. That's where the energy, you know, for our, our change comes from. Um, and then, you know, we frame the problem. You probably know the famous Peter Drucker quote, there's nothing quite as so useless as doing something very well that never needed to be done in the first place. Right. So change the problem because most people are working on the wrong problem. And then radical collaboration, the problems and the interesting solutions are out in the world. Talk to people. Bias to action. Because again, if there's no data about the future, just let's go do some stuff. Let's build some stuff. And then prototyping. Just, you know, that's the building. Let's we investigate the world by building things and seeing what people do with them. So if you get curious, radically collaborate, um, reframe your problems, build lots of prototypes, you're doing design thinking. And you distinguish between work view and life view. Say more. So uh, in the classic diagram of design thinking, you start with empathy. In the case of designing your life, you start with first empathy for yourself. Who are you? What do you want? What do you want out of work? What do you want out of life? And then empathy for the world. Because just because you want to do something doesn't mean the world cares, right? That, that doesn't mean the world's going to let you do it. So we have people write a work view, 250 words, 500 words on what's your theory of work? Why do we work? What's work for? And then a life view, which is, you know, literally 250 to 500 words on what's the meaning of life? What's your organizing principle? Why are we here? It might be a spiritual thing, might be a secular thing, but whatever it is. And then the really important thing is that, that research shows that when you, when you have a coherent life view and work view, when the two match, you are able to uh, experience your life as being more meaningful, more coherent. You know, you, you're just, you're, you're, you're more in the groove. And so what we ask people to do is make these things explicit and then they, they read them out to each other. We do put people in little groups of three. Because when you speak it, you sort of claim it, right? I mean, and then you hear yourself speaking it and you hear other people's reaction to it. And that forms what we call your compass. So now I know why I'm working. I know what works for in my bigger picture of what's life for. And that gives people, you know, some a, a place to start. Give me an example of that. So, you know, I'm working with, uh, I'm working with a bunch of young students now in, in the Designing Your Life class. They're typically seniors. And, you know, someone will say, well, you know, I think I work to make money, but I also work because I want to have some impact and meaning in my life. And then maybe their life view, you know, is like, I think, you know, I, I value family, I value community, I value, you know, the people in my life and I want to, and I want to do, you know, and I, and I want to be a good human. So those are pretty coherent, right? I want to be a good human and work is in the service to others and making money and, and finding meaning. Although I got to tell you, everybody, you know, this whole idea that like work is going to be meaningful is a pretty new idea. You know, my, 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 uh, my grandparents were immigrants from Germany. My dad got the family out of Germany in 1930. My grandfather got the family out of Germany in 1933 because there was this guy named Hitler who just got elected. And, you know, his thing was like, I'll take any job. He had sixth grade education. It was, it was work to survive. Yeah, work right? to survive, work to put a roof over our head, work to send the kids to school. His kids went to the community college. I went to Stanford. My daughter's getting a PhD in, in stem cell technologies, you know, UCSF. So it's a classic immigrant story. But nowadays the kids all want impact and they want meaning. And I'm like, you know, you might not want to get your meaning where you get your money. Uh, I just want to pause there because I think it's I think it's a really important point. And I find that sometimes sometimes it's a bit of an indulgence. And when they say they want meaning in the work, uh, sometimes I find just, and I know this is crass, they want the work to be more fun. Yeah. Then what oftentimes work is, especially early in your career, that this notion that they should feel some sort of meaning, which is Latin for I want it to be less stressful and less like bureaucratic, less bullshit. I, I, and I know I sound boomerish here, 
you know, this notion that that you can have balance in your life. I've never bought it. Uh, you can have it all at once. You you can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. Like it's a certain amount of balance requires a certain amount of lack of balance at some point. Is there some sort of is a younger generation a bit more entitled or un, are their expectations unrealistic? I don't know if they're entitled, but I think, you know, uh, psychologists have this principle called the hedonic treadmill. It used to be money. I got to have more money, get a little more, and then it's good for a while. Then I got to have some more. I got to have some more, right? And now I think money, uh, you know, meaning is maybe the new money. It's this hedonic treadmill. But, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, look, I want to go to work and I want to know what, I, you know, what I'm working on and what I'm working for. That's fine. That's not entitled. That's reasonable. And managers are doing a shitty job of connecting the dots between hey, you're the junior analyst, you're making the spreadsheets for the partner, so shut up and do your work. Or, hey, let me tell you why this is important. Because if we have good data, we can make better decisions. If we organize the data well, the partner can just, you know, move fast. So, you know, we had the big quit, 47 million people quit in 2021, about the same number quit in 2022. Um, people are pretty unhappy at their jobs. You know, the, the Gallup engagement survey has never had more than you know, 30, 32% engaged workers in the U.S. So it's not a new problem that people find their jobs meaningless. It's a management problem because you can, you, can you can make any job, you know, significant and feel like it has impact. And I think we do a terrible job at doing it. And this generation is a little more demanding. They value novelty over mastery. You know, they, they're talking to me about, well, I want to have an impact. I go, well, you've only been in the job a year and you don't really know what you're doing yet. You know, so like dig in and learn how to do the job well. Once you have mastery over this junior analyst position or this junior designer position, you get more responsibility and you start to move into, into you know, bigger and bigger, more responsible roles. And those roles, you know, have more, more impact because you're moving the needle on how much money we make or, you know, how many customers we serve. So, you know, dig on our mastery. But I, I think that if I, I don't know about entitlement, but this generation seems to like to change. Like I did something for a little while. I got bored. I, I quit my job. I went to another company. I did the same thing. I had a student who did this five times, you know, five completely successful jobs in, you know, five years. And I'm going, what are you doing? She goes, well, you know, it's just not that interesting. I said, well, it's not that interesting because you don't really, you never get to the, the second part. You never get to the second project. So if mastery is a goal, I think of mastery, two components would be uh, grit and perseverance and time spent trying to master that, and also just natural talent. And I, I find that most young people fall into the trap of thinking they've been told, follow your passion, and I've always been, follow your talent. And your job in your 20s or one of your jobs is to figure out what you're just naturally talented at. Do you have a process or a way of distilling that down to a set of behaviors for getting to that answer sooner rather than later? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, this whole follow your passion thing, uh, uh, Dave Evans, the guy I wrote the books with, and I are kind of the anti-passion guys. So, yeah, we're research-based. We teach the class. It's got, you know, lots of exercises in it, but it's Stanford, so I can't just make shit up. Um, I've got a, um, I've got it based on the research. So, uh, right across the campus is the center for the study of adolescence and a guy named Bill Damon, who's a big researcher in this space. He wrote a book called path to purpose. He said, look, only 20% of people have any single year, single identifiable passion. 80% of the people, when you ask them that question, go, I don't know, or I don't, I got five of them. What do you want to, what do you want to talk about first? So it doesn't, it's, it's a stupid question because eight out of 10 people are going to answer. I don't know. And actually, you know, we're like, like you, I, I think we're all in favor of people working passionately and working with grit, but you don't have to know your passion in advance to figure out what you want to do with your life. 
And so, yeah, you do a work for you and a life for you. That's your compass. And then you, um, you know, you engage your curiosity to figure out, you know, wh yeah, where are my talents? And talent is interesting because I think it does exist, but I also think that, you know, talent plus the 10,000 hours is what gets you to mastery and, and to, a, to a state where, you know, you can see around the corners and, and you're doing work that nobody else can do. So if you can identify something that you're naturally drawn to, um, and whatever the circuits in your brains are that happen to sort of process that kind of information uh, better than others, then you're on the right path. Um, we have a, you know, I think it's like get curious, talk to people, try stuff, and then tell your story. That's the whole book in a in a nutshell. Get curious because that's the, that's the thing that you know. Take your curiosity for a walk. There's stuff in the world that's interesting. Go find it. Then talk to people and talk, you know, that this is maybe information interviewing. We call it prototype conversations, prototype experiences. Go out and talk to people. Um, you know, William Gibson, a science fiction writer, he said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. You know, so like there's somebody doing what you think you're interested in doing. Just go talk to them. It's like time travel. They're 10 years down the road in your career. If you talk to them and something in your body lights up, that's a really good sign that maybe this is something of interest to you. Do a ride along, do a shadow somebody for a day, uh, make up a little project and do it and then, you know, find somebody to um, talk to with it and then tell your story. Because as you tell your story about this journey, other people come in and say, oh, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to this guy, Scott Galloway, or you should talk to this guy, Dave Evans. Our experience is five, six cycles of that. And all of a sudden you found yourself in a really interesting place in the work world or in your, in your personal life. And you're, and you're hanging out with people that are in your tribe. Part of the problem is we don't have a common vocabulary and you need to be able to, so talent people understand the term, but have you thought about, and is, has there been, has anyone distilled it down to like, these are the, the seven types of talent? I'm not fond of assessments because I think it puts people in boxes, but the one we use is the, from, it comes from what well, was, was called the Clifton Strength Finder, um, but now it's Gallup bought it, so they call it the Strength Finder. And what Strength Finder is, is sort of 35 things that Gallup has isolated that- 35. Yeah, 35. <laughs> but, and, and then you do the test and they give you your top five. Right, I got they it. Give you okay. your top five. And there are things like strategist, you know, imagination, um, you know, uh, Max, a maximizer, which they, they use kind of crazy words, but a maximizer is a person who just likes to optimize systems. Um, a strategist is a person who thinks, you know, thinks in big picture. Um, uh, you know, an ideator is a person who's really good at generating options. And so you get your, we, we do that in class. We get, and the kids get their five signature strengths, they call it, and they break it down, you know, according to a certain certain things. It doesn't say, oh, if you're really good at coming up with ideas and you're a strategizer and a maximizer, you should be an investment banker. It doesn't say that. But at least it gives you a sense of, you know, compared to other people, the reason I'm the person in the group that tends to get things organized and get things done, or the reason I'm the person in the group who tends to come up with the idea that nobody else thought of is because it's a talent. And they call the strength a talent plus what you work on. So talents is underlying. But if you don't if you don't work on it, if you don't practice it, you know, and make it better, it ain't a strength. But it's backed up, you know, Gallup does lots of statistics. It's backed up by a couple of million data points of, of what works in, and it's all about the, it's, it's not like uh, Myers-Briggs, I'm an INTJ, and anything like that. It's, a, it's very much about what are the things that, that make people successful at work. We'll be right back.
Support for this show comes from NetSuite. If you own a business, money is often at the top of your mind. How to save it, how to spend it, how much you need, how much you don't need. But simple math will tell you that the less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a leading cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash prof. netsuite.com slash prof. netsuite.com slash prof. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! I uh, got introduced to a group called Second Act, and it was, I think it's called Second Act, and it was all these incredibly successful professionals who worked at Goldman for 20 years, got laid off or decided to leave. They wake up to 42, and they're like, I don't know what I want to do. I just, don't, I just know I don't want to be an investment banker any longer. And I feel blessed because I figured that out after two years, not 20. And I was also blessed with I was not very good at it, so there was no temptation to stay in it. What advice do you have to people who feel like, oh, my gosh, I, I feel like I'm getting stuck? Like, A, how do you know when you're stuck? And B, what's a means of catalyzing or getting through the mud, if you will? You're right. You got lucky because if, if for whatever reason you weren't as good as, the, as your peers at investment banking, you got a really clear signal. Hey, maybe this is 100%. Fast failure is a gift. Yeah, fast failure is a gift. I mean, and, you know, the, the folks I talked to who were, who were 45 and now burned out and, and pissed off and they don't want to be an investment banker anymore. They just happened to be really smart. So they were good at it. But that the, the curse of being really smart is they didn't get a lot of signals from the marketplace about stuff they couldn't do. Because pretty much if they worked really hard, they probably could do almost anything. So that there is a curse <laughs> in being um, too smart, you know, too smart for your own good. I think um, people get stuck. That's the whole basis of, you know, our students get stuck. People get stuck in mid-career. They get stuck when they, you know, people are retiring in some cases earlier and they have a much longer, you know, health span. They're going to be healthy for another 20, 25 years. That's a whole other career. You can't just go golfing for 25 years. So this is a big problem. But how, so how do you how do you know your stock? Well, you've come, you know, take an assessment. The last you know twelve months, you've come to work and you and you, you had to drag your ass out of bed every Monday morning, and there's nothing. You're not curious about anything you're doing anymore because you've just been doing it for so long that it isn't interesting. Um, so the the stuck feeling is like numb, like your brain's your brain's numb, your your head's numb, your heart's numb. So it takes a little bit of work to identify it. But once you've identified it, then then the mindsets of you know, curiosity, reframing, you know, come into play. And so, you know, so you get curious, you start talking to people and you try different things and then you, you tell your story. It's an empirical process. It's the, it's the difference between 
navigation and wayfinding. If I'm navigating, if I know I'm, I'm currently sitting at Stanford, if I want to go home to my, my house in the dog patch, I know exactly how to do that. I enter the address in my GPS. It takes me up 280 and I'm there. I know the beginning and the end point. That's navigation. Wayfinding is I know where I am. I don't know where I want to go. I have a vague target. One of the interesting studies on this is um, hunters in, in, in northern Norway and Lapland and way up north. You know, they leave the village as a group. They go to a certain place. They don't know where the animals, where the caribou are, but they, they, they have some ideas. They have some heuristics for how they go to the next step and they look for some tracks and they find something. And, and the path is left, right, up, down, forward, back. You know, they finally find the animals because they're good hunters. They kill a caribou and then they navigate back to, you know, they dress the animal, bring it home. That's straightforward. So the shortest path between the animal and home is a straight line. The shortest path between the hunters and the animal is literally the shortest distance is this circuitous route. But they use their, their you know, in tacit knowledge and tracks and, and signs in the environment. So that's what you do when you're trying to find a new, a new gig, a new thing to do, a new thing that'll turn you on. So just accepting that you're, that you're done is sometimes really hard to do. And it is the shortest distance to your future is to start the journey to the next step collect some data, run some prototypes, see what you find, go left, go right based on the data, get to the next point, you know, and, and some introspection, some discernment, and you'll get there. You will absolutely get there. So when you're trying to figure out your talent and, and kind of this design thinking as it relates to your work, and I love this exercise of figuring out, trying to articulate why do we or why do we work or why do you work? What is your life for? And then the, the answers to those two things kind of form a compass. And then your, your five-part process, I think, is really actionable. Have you thought about applying this notion of design thinking to creating stronger relationships or more enduring relationships? Should you be going through the same a similar process around the key relationships in your life? When we wrote the first book, we 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 realized very early on that the book is it's, it's called designing your life. It's not it's always designing our lives together. I mean, nobody's a nobody's no man is an island, right? So, and it was interesting. We were at a book signing, and and this couple came up and they said, "Thank you so much for saving our marriage." And we said, "What are you talking about?" And they said, "Well, you know, now that now we used to fight over my career, her career, blah blah blah, but now we do Odyssey plans together, and it's really cool because we generate all these ideas of things we could do." that aren't a trade-off, they're a, a yes and. And we're like, oh shit, we've, we totally screwed up. We, we didn't include that in the book. And I think I know that the same idea, empathy, redefine the problem, come up with lots of ideas, try stuff. All of these techniques are, are brilliant when applied to building your community, finding mentors, um, you know, uh, creating sustainable relationships. You know, back to my, my, my grandfather who, you know, came to America with no education and took any job he could take. He literally worked at the sewage factory, shoveling stuff from one tank to another, you know, for 50 cents a day at one point. But he had a meaningful life because he had his community and he had his church. He was a man of faith and he and my grandmother, you know, had, had the people at the church. Life wasn't easy, but he had community. And he had relationships. If you, you know, the Harvard study, um, the grant study and the Harvard study of adult development that's wrapped up, Robert Waldinger wrote a book on this. It's like, what's the number one thing that predicts longevity, that predicts health, that predicts actually wealth? And it's relationships. 
So you got you got to dive you got to dig into that and you got to double down and that's what I, I really worry about my students because you know this is the loneliest generation we've educated it's the most anxious and and you know screwed in, in a lot of ways psychologically you know challenged generation the most medicated number you know offset line on something like 60 70% of the students at Stanford are on some kind of medication for their anxiety 60 or, to 70% yeah yeah because this is you know you, I I heard you talk about this, this is the generation of boys who got you know diagnosed as ADHD because they were what? They couldn't sit in a chair for six hours a day when they were nine. Um, and so they're, you know, they all got their Adderalls and their whatevers. Um, it's it's funny, you know, when I was in, when I was a college student, all the drugs were fun. Now you listen to Led Zeppelin after doing the drugs we did. Yeah, and then, you, and, now, yeah. and nowadays all the drugs are for performance. Yeah, you know, 100%. To be better at something. That's no fun. And how has your work impacted your role as a husband and a father are there certain things when your kids were teenagers or acting as their dad and giving them advice what can you advise other dads (laughs) on yeah um you know what one boys are is this the cobbler's kids have no shoes no no boys are different than girls my my son was a lot more challenging than my daughter's but um, you know, we, you know, my wife, my wife was is, is is actually an entrepreneur now in a business. Went, went to the dark side, got an MBA, but she was also a designer uh, at at one point in her life. And so we we just thought, you know, the most important thing is social emotional learning, and the most important thing is that the kids know that they that they preserve their creativity even through the you know through school, which kind of just teaches conformity and they say they want creativity but they just want kids to sit up and shut shut, sit down and shut up and do their work right you know and i'm an i'm a sort of reformed toy designer i did star wars toys and other toys in the early part of my career and then i realized these toys are just turning our kids into into consumers and so our thing was like you don't get toys but you get all the hot melt and you know and and exacto knives you want our kids you know we're cutting stuff out with exactos at at four and five and if you cut yourself you learn not to do that if you burn yourself with a hot milk gun you know you learn not to do that so we we just focused on their creativity and their social and emotional learning and they've all turned out great now were there lots of challenges to the teenage years sure because but but you know that that's what they're supposed to do i mean at one point i remember talking to my wife i said boy if we do this really really well they're going to say the reward is they say thanks mom and dad I'm out of here. I'm good. So, so we just focused, you know, we've said, we, and we won't be in the room where they have to make a hard decision. You know, am I going to put that pill in my mouth? And am I going to, you know, in my son's case, break into that school room? Um, and uh, so, you know, just try to teach him to make the right decision when we're not there. Um, and so we taught them a lot of design and they're very creative kids. Um, the rest of it, they did on their own. They were just, you know, just, they're just wonderful. I love them. That's my, my biggest accomplishment. And just circling back to the corporate world, um, and my guess is you're going to agree with this thesis, but one observation I've had is that um, when VCs, I, I work with a lot of VCs, and I'll be in the room during a pitch, and the, you used to ask, who's the tech guy or gal on the team? And then they'd ask you know, thoughtful questions to try and make sure there was a there there. I increasingly uh, believe and find that they're going to ask, who's the design person? That the chief designer, whatever you want to call this person, the chief creative officer, is now no longer gets just a cool office where they can put up stickers and bring weird posters, they're actually on the on the executive floor now. It does feel as if, you know, founder of Airbnb, CEO of, of Snap, that design has been elevated as kind of a core competence of, of successful companies. 
I, I think it's absolutely true. In fact, um, uh, one of our, our lecturers sometimes is a woman named Irene Au, and she's the design partner at Coastal Ventures. And her job is to help the startups that they've invested in to understand how to use design as a strategic power. And uh, you, men you mentioned Snapchat. So I don't know, what it was 2014, 15, uh, one of my advisees, Evan Spiegel, walked in my office and said, hey, what if, you know, everybody's trying to make per pictures permanent on the internet. What if we made them disappear? And I said, Evan, that's a stupid idea. Why would anybody want their pictures to disappear? And that's Evan Spiegel and that's Snapchat. Um, and and we, still, we still do some work together. It's kind of fun. But yeah, I think you're right. It, I, what, what people have looked at is the, you know, the example of Apple, the example of Harley-Davidson, the example of why are Apple's hardware margins 50% and everybody else in the business barely ekes out a margin at all because you will pay more for an Apple product. Why? Because it's not just the product, it's the design, it's the whole integration. Um, and people misunderstand. They think Apple products are just designed to look nice, but there's actually three layers to it. And, and so, you know, yeah, I think design has, has David Kelly, our, our senior guy here from uh, that started the D school and, and started IDEO. He says, you know, designers used to be at the kids table, you know, for dinner, but now they're with the grownups. Bill Burnett is a designer, educator, and an adjunct professor at Stanford University. He is also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Designing Your Life and the co-director of the Life Design Lab at Stanford University and executive director of the design program where he manages the undergraduate and graduate programs. He joins us from his office at Stanford University. I really enjoyed this, Bill. Congratulations on your success and the impact you're having. I keep seeing your name and people referring to your uh, good work more and more. Well, thank you very much. And uh, again, it's a, it's a privilege. I love, your, uh, I love the work you're doing. I, I think you are a truth teller and then we need more of that. Algebra of Happiness. This was a super interesting weekend, and it revealed a lot about different parties. I thought um, I was involved in when I'm say this weekend, the Silicon Valley Bank implosion. Now, I was directly involved, or am directly involved, either on the board of an investor in or the founder of a company that does banking with Silicon Valley Bank. Prof G does their banking with Silicon Valley Bank, and we had more than the $250,000 FDIC limit. My edtech company, Section 4. Uh, had dramatically more than the $250,000 limit. Another company I'm involved in uh, had tens of millions. Another one, um, uh, I think almost 10 million. And there were a range of, of behaviors. And first off, as much shit as venture capitalists get, the venture capitalists I work with, uh, specifically General Catalyst, who's backed everything I've ever done, uh, we're just calm and said, don't worry, we'll figure this out. Don't worry about things like payroll. Tell the CEO uh, that we'll absolutely figure this out. They were, they were kind of there. They were also part of that letter that said we back Silicon Valley Bank. And in general, the majority of the VCs I spoke to were very supportive. The CEOs immediately kind of jumped to action and tried to figure out liquidity and what it meant. There was definitely a difference, though. The young CEOs had their hair on fire. They'd never seen this before. Uh, and there was more of a I don't want to call it a panic, but they just hadn't experienced something like this before. And my view was, um, uh, and I only took money out. And let me be clear, I was the dumb one. I, I was only part of one company that got their money out because I was not panicked. And maybe I should have been. And had the government not stepped in, I'd be hating myself right now. 
And one of the things that happens when you get older is you develop perspective. What does that mean? That is you have a wider lens. The aperture is broader. And that is you've been through a lot of this stuff and you realize that I thought in 2008, uh, that was it, that the economy was coming to an end. And guess what? It didn't. In 2000, when the dot bomb crisis wiped out every one of my companies, I thought, that's it. My career's over. No one's ever going to invest in me. Um, I, I'm going to be a pariah. Uh, people are going to be angry. Uh, that was not true either. Uh, there's been all sorts of times when I thought, this was it. This is the end. Uh, on the flip side, in 1999, when Red Envelope was supposed to go public, and I thought, by this time next year, I'll have a Gulfstream. That was not true. In 2007, when I thought I'm a master of the universe advising hedge funds and I'm going to make hundreds of millions of dollars as an activist investor, uh, that was not true either. Uh, and that is, and again, it all comes back to the same place. And this has been such a huge source of comfort and perspective for me. And it's the following. Nothing is as good or as bad as it seems. And it should impact your life on both sides of the spectrum. When you're killing it, when you've been promoted, when things are going well for you, you're making money, your stocks are going up, recognize a lot of it isn't your fault and be humble and be grateful and maybe even diversify a little bit because recognize a lot of it is luck. And I find luck over the long term is perfectly asymmetrical and you will at some point face bad luck and you should prepare for it. Life isn't about what happens to you. Life is about how you react to what happens to you. And I think part of being masculine, and again, I don't think masculinity is a domain of any, any one gender, but part of being masculine is remaining calm when shit gets real recognizing that as bad as something might seem in real time, it likely isn't as bad as we think. And in a few years from now, and definitely when you're near the end, you're going to look back and you're not going to be upset about what happened. You're going to be upset at how upset you were. Be the steady hand. Calm other people. Be good to yourself. Be forgiving to yourself. Also, be humble. Nothing's ever as good or as bad as it seems. This episode was produced by Caroline Shagrin. Jennifer Sanchez is our associate producer. Andrew Burroughs is our technical director. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Saturday for No Mercy, No Malice, as read by George Hahn, and on Monday with our weekly markets show. Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. 're to do's less time and an infinite number of tools to keep track of sometimes doing business has never felt harder but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals you can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier imagine this high quality leads fast closing deals wildly happy customers and more benchmark breaking quarters it's not a miracle it's HubSpot visit hubspot.com to get started today